Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of Infection Control Matters. Uh, this is Brett Mitchell here again, and thanks again for joining. Today, we have Martin Keenan uh, joining me, and Martin, we also have a very special guest. Yeah, we certainly do, Brett. And today, our special guest is Didier Pitté, who really needs no introduction, although just on the off chance there's some passing space probe coming through from an, another galaxy. Uh, Didier is the Director of the Infection Prevention and Control Program at WHO Collaborating Centre on Patient Safety at the University Hospital of Geneva. And he's been the external lead on the WHO Global Patient Safety Challenge, Clean Care is Safer Care, for a number of years now. And he's been celebrated all over the world. We've given him a CBE here in the UK. I don't think there's anybody in healthcare associated with infection who doesn't know Didier. So welcome, Didier. And the, the first thing I wanted to ask you really was, why did you hit on hand hygiene as the main theme for your work? I know you started off as an interest in, in intensive care and some of your early papers were around that area, but then you did the, the multi-intervention at Geneva and hand hygiene has become your passion for your life. And it was a time when many people were running away from hand hygiene, but you ran towards it. Well, you are right, uh, Martin. Uh, and first of all, nice to have uh, to be with you this morning. It's uh, my pleasure and uh, with you and, and Brett. Um, well, yes, you're right. My, my career started as an internal medicine doctor. So I worked a lot in internal medicine and in uh, intensive care, yes, for uh, for quite uh, some time. And while in ICU, you realize the problem of infections is pretty important, as you know. And yes, I started to sort of do some project and work on uh, healthcare-associated infections in the ICU, but it was more as an internal medicine ICU doctor. And then I trained in infectious disease. So uh, we were lucky in Geneva to have this type of uh, of training. And I worked with uh, one of the, the, the top five person in infectious disease in the world at the time, Francis Valfour. And after a few years, uh, uh, he uh, sort of uh, asked me whether I would really sort of be considering to become an ID doctor and also to develop a program or uh, something that would help to prevent healthcare associated infection that was not existing in our institution and was most of the time not existing in Europe, actually. It was in 1986-87. I left for um, a different uh, tour. I had been trained already in, in public health, uh, in tropical medicine and so on. But at that time, I left for the United States in 1989 and came back in 1992 in Geneva, where we created the infection control program in 1992. And there I was, be a new chief of service. I was 35 years old. And you have to convince the other head of services, like head of cardiology, head of cardiovascular surgery, head of orthopedics, who most of them were between the age of 55 and 65, to actually consider healthcare associated infection as a real problem and as an important problem. And at that time, in my country at least, it was a total taboo. So nobody sort of would even recognize that infections would exist in the hospital. We never had a prevalence study in our institution. There had never been a prevalence study in Switzerland. So actually I started like this, building up 
prevalence study for our institution. And I discovered, guess what? That infections exist. Yeah, what a surprise. <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> and it was in the range of uh, 16%. So I reconducted the, the study and then it was 17% and then 18%. So within one year, we got four prevalence studies with rates between 15 and 18%. So then I knew that healthcare-associated infection was a reality. And of course, then as a very young chief of service, remember I was 35 years old, uh, I said, okay, what can I do? I mean, infection exists, but it's not enough to tell the others infection exists. So we realized, we knew it was known that uh, hand hygiene was really key, but we didn't know why it was key. And what was the reality of hand hygiene? So what we did is our very first study, where because of the fact that I was trained in epidemiology, in particular while in the United States, uh, I, I understood that we needed to have a real idea of what was the reality of hand hygiene. And at that time, we didn't talk about hand hygiene. We talked about hand washing. Remember, Martin? I mean, yes. The, the, the rules were to wash your hands with soap and water. And we yeah. didn't even know when we had to wash our hands, right? So I look at the literature, I look at several things, and then we sort of build up a protocol to monitor hand washing. And we went to the field uh, during two weeks. Every single ward of the hospital, day and night, weekdays, weekends, and we monitored hand washing and we found that the compliance with hand washing was low. It was not a surprise. Actually, that was the very first time it was monitored very systematically with a very epidemiologically driven protocol. And hand washing was around 36% on average. So once every three times a healthcare worker would have to clean hands, he would do it. Twice he would not do it. But then... I realized that the timing for hand washing was so long. You know, in the ICU, looking at the data, it was clear that a nurse would have to clean hands, his or her hands, for actually 22 times per hour. Now, when you realize that you need between one and 1.5 minutes, we timed it with a timer to go to the sink, turn the water, have your water on your hands, have the soap on your hands. We were supposed to apply the soap for at least 30 seconds, then rinse your hands, dry your hands, and go back to your patient. It would take too much time. So in other words, it would take more than half an hour, every hour of patient care in the ICU just to wash your hands. And of course, this would have been the era where you didn't have one sink beside every bed either. It would have been a walk to the sink, wouldn't it? Of course. So at that time, we realized, oh, okay, it, it, it means that this is mission impossible to wash your hands. So because I was, I had this training in, in um, you know, in the laboratory, in the laboratory to, for clinical microbiology, because it's part, uh, part of my training as an ID doctor, we had uh, in the, the spot where we were used to cultivate the bacteria, we had uh, alcohol-based hand rub, but it was alcohol and water at the very end of, of the place where we were working. 
And the, 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 the fact was what, that we were supposed to clean our hands with alcohol immediately if we would have been in contact with a multi-resistant bacteria on our fingers and then rush to the hand wash basin. So that was the idea at the time. So I thought, well, could we imagine to use the, this alcohol-based hand rub in the routine patient care? And of course, this alcohol was very hard for your hands at the point, at that point. And then I understood, I went to the pharmacy department and I was lucky because in the pharmacy department, we had a pharmacist who was thinking about alcohol-based hand rub for a long time and was preparing something, but nobody was interested in what he was doing. So there I am and I'm asking him, you know what, we need something and so on. And we worked together to develop an alcohol-based hand rub that would be actually very well tolerated for your hands. And then we checked it in the lab to make sure that it would be microbiologically efficacious. And that's the beginning. Then of course, when you got the, the idea of the alcohol to actually speed up the process of rubbing your hands, you actually need to promote it. And we in, imagine this multimodal strategy using the monitoring and the performance feedback, using the posters on the wall, using actually education and we transform education and just telling people when to clean their hands and then how to clean their hands and, and then to improve safety culture in the institution. So that was the beginning. And we introduced this strategy in 1995. And between 1995 and, and the year 1998, we monitor hand hygiene practices. We reconducted our prevalence studies uh, on healthcare-associated infection, and we dropped the infection rate by 50%. We dropped the MRAC cross-transmission rate by 80% at that time. And of course, we were lucky. We published our paper in the Lancet. And after that, we were visited from people all over, from all around the world who wanted to know what we did. Yeah, that was that was one of my top five papers from all time when I, when I had to do that at the IPS 60th celebration a couple of years ago. I mean, it, it was a game changer. Actually, I, I should have picked another one of your papers as well because you were doing bundles before they were even called bundles. You called them multiple interventions, but actually they were bundles, weren't they? Uh, Brett, do you want to come in now? Yeah, yeah. I, I, thanks, Martin, and thanks, Didier. Um, and I guess that's that's a, some great background. And then fast forward a number of years, and what we have now, of course, is hand hygiene embedded into hospitals right across the world. And um, and so I wonder this year, Didier, for World Hand Hygiene Day, which is, of course, coming up, what's the theme this year that um, is going to be the focus for for hospitals and healthcare settings? Yeah, this year uh, the focus is uh, is seconds save lives. Clean your hands. And this is, this year is a very specific year because we are joined by UNESCO. Usually we have our World Hand Hygiene Day added by WHO that we direct, we give the material, we, we did everything. Now UNESCO has developed this sort of hand washing and hand hygiene initiative. Well, it's a hand hygiene initiative where you use high, either hand washing or hand rubbing because it's in the community, it's not only in the hospital. So we join, we have joined our forces and the idea is still, guess what? Hand hygiene at the point of care, because whether we, you will be at the point of taking care of a patient or whether we, you would be uh, at the point of 
being close to somebody in the community, it's the same, right? You need to wash your hands or you need to clean your hands or you need to rub your hands. Actually, if you say clean your hands, it would say hand washing or hand rubbing immediately before contact, if I want to make it simple. So immediately before eating something, immediately before, you know, uh, taking the nose of, of your children who just got, you know, sort of uh, uh, rhin noses and, and things like that. So it's, it's really at time or at point of care or contact. So that's the idea of this year. So, so it's a, it's a, it's an interesting year because you you have heard of you have heard about it, but before uh, you all know that uh, hand hygiene, in particular in hospital, alcohol based hand rubbing at the point of care is so important. Which means right before touching the patient, right before accessing the IV. Uh, right after, you know, contact with body fluid exposure. And it also means that you have to have your alcohol-based hand rub on yourself. So I have it here in, in my pocket, right? But when I am going to the bedside, I can find it close to me. That's the same idea in the community. Of course, when you are in the kitchen, it's relatively easy because you have your soap and water very close to you when you are in the bathroom. But what would be the situation in other time of, of life when you go to the office, when you go to school, uh, and so on and so on. So it's really having this reflex implemented into your daily life that we want to sort of uh, carry as a message. It's a great idea. And, and you know, what we see from a lot of data is um, higher hand hygiene compliance after we've done things, you know, after we've um, come into contact with someone or we've, we, we, we've saw that risk perception is a bit different. So I think changing that dialogue uh, to, to before is critically important if we want to prevent infections. Um, so Martin, I think you might've had a, a question that you want to segue very nicely into that sort of, how do we sustain hand hygiene more broadly in the community? I think you had a question about that, Martin. Yeah. I remember reading a paper years ago that if you didn't embed good hygiene behaviors by about the age of seven, then it was going to be very difficult to change that. And so a lot of surgeons' parents have got a lot to answer for as far as I'm concerned. But do you think that because of the coronavirus pandemic, that children are now learning to decontaminate their hands or wash their hands a lot more at school, at home, they're being told by their parents to do that. Do you think that better hygiene behaviours will feed down into subsequent generations today or will this be a temporary thing? No, I think that definitely there will be a change in the behaviour because I can tell, I mean, all, all these young children, when they go to school now, they get teached hand hygiene. Even teenagers, they get teach hand hygiene. And you can see it. You can see people doing, you know, this, this gesture. Yeah. We are talking about, you know, the, 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 the steps, uh, you know, um, the six steps, whatever. The, the question is not there. The question is to see how people are doing. I'm doing here fingertips, you know, uh, I'm doing these, I'm doing that. You never saw that before, right? No, so that's right. the first thing. And then, you know, you, you, you see those people washing their hands all the time and you see people rubbing their hands in the community using alcohol-based hand rubs. So, yeah, they walk into the supermarket, they use yeah. the dispenser, don't they? Yeah. yeah. I'm, 
I guess that we will keep part of it, I, I guess, and I hope for it. I don't want to be too much an, an, of an in hygienist person. You know, I don't think that, you know, some people would tell my, my children, it must be horrible to live at home with your father. He must ask you to wash your hands all the time. Not at all. Not at all. No, me I mean, neither. No, you neither. But, you know, we, we, it's, it's just a behavior that we all need to understand when to perform it and do it a little bit better. And we know from the, the field, I mean, of course, in the hospitals, we would love to have 100% compliance, but we know it's difficult, right? And, but we know also that even if you get, you go from 40% to 60%, we demonstrated it from 60% to 80%, each step you decrease infections. So even if I would love to see 100% compliance and also the, you know, I don't trust hospitals who are telling me we got 100% compliance with hand hygiene. I was going to say, come to the UK, yeah. you'll see lots of people reporting 100% compliance. This is not true. This is not true. I know about it. But I think that the way we, we promote it, the way we improve it is definitely important. And we need to secure the fact that it becomes a habit. And actually, uh, within our, 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 our different take, uh, you know, your actions from WHO, they are, let's, let's make it become a habit. And that's, that to me is, is more important. So yes, Martin, to come back to your question, I'm pretty sure that these new generations that are now more uh, sort of uh, understanding that these simple gestures are important will be part of the future and will help us in the future. Talking about the future, I've actually got a couple of questions in a minute, DDA, for you about what the future might hold. But before I before I get to that, you know, people are about to embark on World Hand Hygiene Day and think about what initiatives they might want to do in their different healthcare settings and. Often that's um, similar groups of professionals trying to come up with new ideas each year to try and promote hand hygiene. Is there anything you've seen over the last year or two in your travels? Or I guess not too much travels in the last year or two, but uh, anything you've seen um, that think that's a great idea? Maybe a hospital might want to try this this year as part of their uh, or healthcare setting as part of their uh, promotion of hand hygiene. Yeah. To tell you the truth, the first thing that I noticed all the time is that the multimodal strategy works and it works, it works, it works, it works. And it's very clear that when you enter in a hospital where you can feel, because you can feel it, you know, you find alcohol-based hand drop at the point of every bed, you know, at the point of care. You find the alcohol-based hand drop there, there, and there. You, you see people rubbing their hands. You see the posters on the wall promoting hand hygiene. You, you, you met with people and they speak to you about hand hygiene. So the, the multimodal strategy. And then when you ask for data, they show you data and it's obvious. It works. Now, what are the extra that make it work better? Well, we know what we can improve because we have done hand hygiene self-assessment framework surveys all over the world. And we are currently uh, actually submitted for publication the, the, the last data about the hand hygiene self-assessment framework. And we can see that what needs to be worked is, okay, let's work on all elements. Let's make sure that 
alcohol is at the point of care. Let's make sure that education is well conducted. But the most important, most of the time is let's make sure the culture of safety is in the institution. And the way to have this culture of safety in the institution has multiple parameters. And in fact, to get the CEO speaking about it, to get the CMO speaking about it, to get the chief of nursing speaking about it and asking for all the head nurses to speak about it and so on and so on. And to recognize the, the best teams, to recognize the innovation, to recognize that in this world, people have developed a great idea to mobilize around hand hygiene. All of these works very well, and in particular, positive reinforcement. I've always been against this punitive strategy. I must tell you that in my institution, infection control nurses and doctors, of course, but including nurses, can tell any surgeon, please clean your hands. You forgot. You forgot. You did this and this. You forgot. And she can do it in front of all the others, whoever is the level of the or the grade of the surgeon. I'm speaking about the surgeons because it's a typical image, but uh, I mean, they can do it for a neurologist, a dermatologist, uh, an, uh, an, an emergency doctor, whatever. This is the spirit, the spirit of protecting the patient that you should carry. Now, there are other fields, of course. Individual feedback is certainly a dream. A, a dream would be that when I see a patient, something would remind me to clean my hands or something would remind me that I did a good job. You know, it's individual performance feedback that I think could change the practice. So there are some devices, we have been developing a device that is still for research, but there are devices that are telling you that yes, you did it and you did it well, or no, you did it, you didn't do it. And, and those things are, are ab absolutely important to me. It needs to be something that become a routine, but a routine that gave you the power. So the power to say, I am really doing a good job to save my patients. I'm completely with you on the positive reinforcement. You know, a couple of years ago, I had to give a talk in Hong Kong about what would be the ultimate hand hygiene system, monitoring system. And I thought something that you, you, it monitors you during the day, but only you get your results. So at the end of the shift, you hang your badge up and it gives you a little printout, just you see it personally, that says, today you saw 27 patients, but actually your hand hygiene was really poor, and compared with your peers, your hand hygiene is not good. And three of these patients have infection, and based on hand hygiene, there is more chance of you giving them the infection than your colleagues for personal reflection, because healthcare workers don't want to go and damage patients, they want to do a good job. But but actually doing individual data to a management where the it, the feedback becomes more punitive, I really don't think is hel is helpful. It's a it's a job a jog it's a nudge, it's to make you think about your own your own um, practice. And I wonder what you think about these automated management uh, uh, monitoring systems because 
there, there's a lot of them around now and the people do seem to be installing them uh, do you think they're, they're useful and do you think they're cost effective well yeah that's that, that's a good question it's clear that there are many different automatic monitoring systems uh, and some of them are monitoring just surrogate of hand hygiene and of course they are not good enough to help you educate help people understand really when to do it and what to do and so on. But it may be useful as overall aggregates to help your CEO to tell, listen, in this part of the hospital, you do better than the in the other part. And that could be a promoter. It could also help infection control practitioners to monitor hand hygiene, even if this is not perfect. So... This is, this, this, some of the, most of them, I would say, are good tools to help, but they are not there and they will probably never replace infection control practitioners at the bedside, monitoring you, teaching you, okay, I know there is an outtone effect because it's always like this when somebody is behind you, you change your behavior, but it doesn't matter. Even if you change the behavior and got an out on effect, people will learn a lot more with infection control practice. So I think that to, to use some of those tools, and some are better than others, some pretend they are monitoring the five moments, but actually none of them is really monitoring the five moments. So, I mean, you, you need to choose the one that that appears to you in combination with the, the work of your healthcare worker and in particular of your IPCs is the best. Now, are they cost effective? I don't think any of them yet has been demonstrated as cost effective, to be honest, because to really demonstrate cost effectiveness, you need to implement the machine at some place and not at, at another. And the only way to demonstrate cost effectiveness would be to demonstrate that the machine or the system has reduced infections, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. These so far, I don't know of any paper, and I can tell you that I have received a lot of tools, including non-published material and so on and so on. None yeah. of them yet is cost-effective. But on the long term, we need to continue to work on, on these concepts because, you know, I, we are monitoring now uh, hand hygiene in Geneva for more than 25 years. So it's very clear that for the IPCs who are monitoring hand hygiene, you cannot ask them to continue to monitor and just sort of return aggregated data. They need to return individual feedback. So once you return individual feedback to individual healthcare workers, you induce an out on effect. So, but you know about it. Now, so it means that to have a routine standardized Automatic monitoring, even if this is not perfect, would help to be a reality and in parallel have IPCs doing the best educations on the spot. And as you know, education is so different when you work in the emergency medicine, in the critical care or in the, in the, in the, in the outpatient clinic uh, that you, you always need the best people in IPC 
to do this. Uh, Brett, you've got a question now about political influences, haven't you? Yes, look, I, I'd love one day, Didier, to invite you to, to a conference to talk on this topic. I, I, you know, in your experience, you've had to uh, institute these types of programs at a local level, at a, at a state, na sort of national level, and very much at an international level, dealing with all kinds of politics. And I think maybe one day there'll be some interesting stories that we'll hear about um, about that. But at all those different levels, you're dealing with people and you're dealing with politics. And that's no different even within a little, within a small healthcare organisation or hospital. Are there any um, any lessons that you think you'd like to share with people about how do you manage some of that perhaps internal politics that goes on to to get your agenda across? Are there any lessons that you've learned that uh, uh, that you think this these are some of the things that I use that might go well elsewhere? Well, uh, you probably uh, know. Currently, I'm, I'm totally biased because speaking of the relationship with politicians, because I have been designated by uh, President Emmanuel Macron to actually revisit the management of the COVID crisis in France in comparison to what has been done in other countries, uh, in particular in Europe. But we are looking at all around the world and we are looking at health, economy and society. So, I mean... Currently, I'm constantly working with the, the thinking of politicians. We have revisited uh, the, the different system, whether a federal country, a centralized country. Would the COVID crisis be associated with a change in the democracy and so on and so on? But that's a totally specific and different phase. My conclusion from these is that politicians to manage the crisis need the best scientists to provide to them the evidence, the scientific evidence, so that the politicians could make the good informed decision. The scientists should not make the decision. They need to remain scientists. And they, of course, can share with politicians about what could be the different scenarios and the politicians should make the decision. So that's a general theme around the COVID crisis. We have seen a lot of things. I can tell you that if you are asking me, is it better to have a centralized country or a federal country like we do have in Switzerland and Germany or a central country like France, I would tell you there is no perfect system at all, okay? There is no perfect system at all. So we need to study it more before sort of coming to more general conclusion. Now, to come back on the general issue of uh, convincing politicians about the importance of healthcare-associated infections and, and fighting against, I think that you, humans are humans. You know, yes. humans are humans and relationship is absolutely key. And we should all be respectful of what is the job of the person you are working with. And in order to bring the essential elements to the political agenda, you have to have convincing scientific evidence. And you should work on scientific evidence first, bring the scientific evidence on the scene, on the plateau, 
and start talking about it. And of course, have a vision that is A, the immediate vision, B, the midterm vision, and C, the long-term vision. And the problem is politicians, most of the time, are working with short-term vision. Absolutely. And eventually yes. midterm vision. But their long-term vision is usually not for themselves. So this is what makes it difficult. But I'm convinced that we should continue to learn how to work together in a multidisciplinary approach, the same way we do it in the hospital, in fact, for anything we want to solve appropriately. Yeah, I think that works quite well for hospital managers as well, doesn't it? Because often they have a short-term vision yes. as well if they're on a short-term contract. So. And Australian prime ministers, they're pretty, uh, they go through a few of those too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I, I think I think we've had a fascinating discussion. I mean, that, we could chat to you for hours, I know. Absolutely. I really want to thank you for sparing the time to talk to us and you know, we wish every success to Global Hand Hygiene Day. I think the message this year is really simple. You know, second save lives. It's a very simple message, uh, but actually a hard-hitting one, showing you that it's very quick to make a big difference to other people. My pleasure. My pleasure. Great pleasure to be with both of you, Martin and, and Brett, as always, uh, from several uh, parts of the planet. And I hope we could see you soon. Uh, and even at ICPIC, maybe for Brett, maybe a little hopefully, more difficult. Man. But uh, Martin, hopefully, I'll make it. Uh, yeah. yeah, hopefully, I'll yeah, make it. Yeah. I hope we'll make it there soon. We. We've uh, still got our borders closed in Australia, but, yeah, but thank you from thank I you know. from me too, Didier, and thank you to those who are listening today. Um, we hope you found this talk uh, enjoyable, as as enjoyable as it has been certainly for me, and I, I suspect Martin as well. Absolutely. So, on behalf of uh, of all of us, thanks again for listening. Goodbye for now. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye bye.